Well, it has been an interesting week of news. I don't know if you've been following U.S. politics at all, but we've seen some pretty wild things uh, happening in the public sphere. Um, Many citizens being called existential threats to the republic. And I won't get you into into all of that. You know, uh, President Joe Biden has uh, said some interesting things lately. I might he might be right to some of those he's speaking to, but I could also tell him to look in the mirror uh, and look at his own party. But when we think about the world of politics, and that's not my goal this morning, although Scripture is political, it has everything to do with society. The true existential threats to humanity, they're not some people in one party or another, but it's anybody who rejects the law of God. Because God owns the earth. And this earth belongs to him. But I will not be surprised at some point in our lifetime we might see another stump speech where the church is in the crossfires and is being called the existential threat. Surely philosophers and and others have already made such claims that Christians are the great threat to society. Certainly many of our doctrines and many of the things that the Bible teaches have been called existential threats to society. It doesn't take much of a mind to be able to figure out some of those as we look at at the moral values being bandied about in society today. The reality is, and we're going to see this in Jeremiah, the great existential threat to society is anyone who rebels against the word of God. That is the very thing that got God's own people kicked out of the land. And it's the very thing that brought ruin on all the nations that the Lord used to discipline Israel and Judah as well. I don't know about you, but I'd like to not be that existential threat to the church. And there are many ministers that are who aren't preaching the word of God, but they're preaching their own machinations. They're preaching man-pleasing messages. And that's all showcased in Jeremiah as well. So Jeremiah, as we discover with all books of the Bible, is absolutely relevant for today. It's an easy book to preach because it speaks to the exact things that we're wrestling with today as well. It's not just what Judah and Israel were dealing with when Jeremiah was writing, but it's the things that we deal with every day in this world as well. We're going to look at this book in three parts this morning. I'm not going to spend any time looking at the overview as sometimes I've done in the series on page 7, but that is there uh, for, your, uh, to, for your edification as you study the book on your own. You can see the outline there. It always helps to kind of know what's going on when you have a map of, of the book, and that's what the outline can serve for you as well. But we're going to dive right into Jeremiah. It's a large book and we don't have a lot of time. Jeremiah was a man against the world. He was set apart by God to basically be everybody's enemy. And we're going to see there's a lot of recourse where we can identify with Jeremiah in his position as God's people. So we're going to look at this in three parts about Jeremiah, man against the world. First, 
there's three things we're going to learn. And the first one is this, that God's patience with rebels won't last. God's patience with rebels won't last. The Lord, as we, as we read in, in the call in Jeremiah 1, sent Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations with a message of doom. As Jeremiah recounted in chapter 1, verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And then in verse 10, the Lord says, See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. So right from the beginning, God has set Jeremiah against many people, practically the whole world from his perspective. And God is going to use Jeremiah not as a political figure, you know, banding about a sword, but by proclaiming the word of God, God was going to use Jeremiah to pluck up and break down and to destroy the nations. We should also note here that God's prophets were not merely speaking to the people of God. The prophetic word of the Lord is for all nations, and it is a warning to all nations who rebel against the Lord and his ways and his people. And we're going to see a little bit more of that a little later today from Jeremiah on the warning that God gives to every nation including our own here. Jeremiah's charge, uh, as, uh, as God gave it through him to Israel, was that they have committed two evils. So if we want to know what is the, what's the sum total, uh, what's the summary statement of which God, that, that uh, describes why God is angry with his people, In chapter 2, verse 13, the Lord says to Jeremiah, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the basic indictment that God has with his people is that they forsook the Lord's water. God gave them good water and they have forsaken him. In other words, they have forsaken the word of God. They have forsaken the word and instead they've turned to the nations to worship their gods and to follow their ways, which God describes here as broken cisterns. So in the, in the Middle East and in Israel, they would, they would carve out cisterns in the ground that would hold water because they didn't have lakes plentiful like we do here in Norway. They had, a hu- they had to basically make themselves these uh, reservoirs that they could put a lid on and that would keep the water in so that they could feed their cattle or they could um, water their cattle and, and keep themselves alive. And God's using this metaphor to say this is what his people are doing. They're abandoning the word of God and they're following the word and the religion of the nations. And that's the fundamental evil. They've turned from God. And they've gone after broken cisterns that can't hold any 
water. To be more specific about the evils that underlie that basic summary, for Israel, which when you read the prophets, this is just a study note for you, when you read the prophets, if you read Israel, generally the prophet is talking about the northern ten tribes. And if you read uh, Judah, if they're talking about Judah, he's talking about the southern kingdom. Okay, that included Benjamin and Simeon as well, that they were in that with Judah in that southern kingdom. So if you read that. So in Jeremiah, we're given an indictment about specific sins for Israel as well as Judah along the way. But for Israel, we read in chapter 2 that for long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy and pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say, I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done, a restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? And God is describing through Jeremiah the Baal worship that's going on by the people of God. And I have said this several times that the, with the cultic prostitution and everything that went along with it, the people of God, the visible churchgoers, are going and whoring after the bales. And yes, God uses outrageous, shocking language like that because their behavior was utterly shocking. He described them as a, as a donkey in heat sniffing the wind for the next person. Uh, to lay with in these cultic sacrifices is vile evil. But how about Judah? Were they, were, they the good, were they the good people? God actually says that Judah's sins were even worse. And I can't read all of it for you today because there's chapter upon chapter of this. But in chapter 3, verse 6, Jeremiah writes, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. So with each generation, things didn't get better and better. It got worse and worse. It's the opposite of the social evolutionary mindset that drives modern society. 
which says, well, things keep getting better and better. Our moral values keep improving and getting better and better. Friends, it's just the same today as it was then. It's getting worse and worse. Without the intervention of God, we can only, it can only get worse. Man on himself will not be more righteous than those who went before. They'll be more treacherous. And we certainly see that today. So what then is the message? What is Judah supposed to do in light of the word of the Lord that is pouring forth from Jeremiah? Well, the call is to amend your ways before it's too late. In chapter 7, Jeremiah writes, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your forefathers." Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered? Only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So imagine the picture. They are boasting that the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem will keep them safe. Surely will be made safe. All the while, just shamelessly committing all of these abominations before the Lord and then coming to him at the temple like he didn't know what they were doing. God said, if you amend your ways, I'll keep you in the land. But if not, it's going to be nothing but death and expulsion. Just on a note here, Jesus used these same words. He quoted from Jeremiah 7 when kicking out the Pharisees in the temple who are using and abusing and exploiting the people of God for their own gains and purposes. And we see the same today with false prophets and false teachers and false pastors giving messages of, oh, you're going to be okay. God loves everyone. All roads lead to God. It's nothing but a message of death and damnation. Jeremiah uses the language of the valley of slaughter in chapter 7. As the Lord speaks to him, he says, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, 
nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, what's being described here is the carnage that will follow Babylon's siege of Jerusalem in 586, where they will run out of places to bury the dead. And in fact, they'll just be laying in the valley like Topheth, where God's own people were killing their own children to worship the god Molech, another one of the fertility prosperity religions. It was the abortion of their day. And God says, if you're going to persist in this, behold, this valley is going to become the valley of slaughter. And death shall be preferred to life by those of this evil family that remains referring to his, his own But Jeremiah didn't just have a dark message for Israel and Judah, also for the nations as well. In chapters 46 to 51, we see messages to the surrounding nations. And I won't go through all of those, but I'll give you just one summary statement from chapter 46, where we read, Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end. Of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. So God will use these nations to punish his people because of their sins, but he will not make a full end of them like he will of the nations that God is using to punish them. Babylon will be decimated, Assyria before them, decimated. These nations are going to rise and fall that the Lord uses for his will, but he will not utterly destroy his people. And that's a hope that we're going to look at in the third point a little later on. But I told you at the beginning that God had a message, kind of a standing message for all nations, not just then, but also now. A standing message. This is God's deal with the nations of this earth. In Jeremiah 18, starting in verse 7, we read that if any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. So God's standing message to all nations is that if you repent as a nation, God promises to do good if you turn back to him. But even if you're a nation that at one time God did good to, 
and you turn from God, he will bring disaster. That's God's standing message for all nations. And that is the message that every political leader ought to tremble at as they lead us as civil leaders to turn back to God that blessing might come. If you want to avoid an existential threat to society, you've got to turn to God as individuals and as a nation. This is what I mean where God's word is political. It's not a, it's not a particular party. But God's word has to do with the here and now with the kingdoms of this earth, just as much as the kingdom of God that is coming, right? In this now and not yet period of time that we live in. So this is a call to the nations, not just for the church. This is a call to the nations and to kings and to rulers to relent and turn back to God in repentance, lest disaster come. And for those that are living on the fumes of God's good will. Turn back, lest disaster comes. So this is Jeremiah's message. God's patience with rebels won't last. That's what we've looked at in this first point. Now let's turn to the second point, the second thing we can learn. Speaking the truth is costly. Speaking the truth is costly. You know, you can't talk like this without making some enemies. You know, God told Jeremiah, I'm setting you against nations. He's tell, he told Jeremiah, even your own family is going to despise you. And just that happened. You know that Jeremiah came from a priestly family? And Jeremiah had to preach against his own family's wickedness. Jeremiah was despised for preaching the word of God. We read in chapter 20 where Jeremiah's lamenting his own calling. He says in 20 verse 8, For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout violence and destruction, for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. You know, Jeremiah walks by, people are pointing fingers People are, are doing far worse. Jeremiah had a very hard life. He was despised. He was rejected. He was made a reproach and a derision. Kings hated him. Priests hated him. The false prophets hated him. His own family and friends hated him. But he had to preach. He says in chapter 20, verse 9, If I say I will not mention him, or speak any more in his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. So the word of the Lord was in Jeremiah, and he couldn't even contain it if he wanted to. But preaching the word of God cost him almost everything. In chapter 20, verse 10, we see that even his close friends hate him. He says, For I hear many whispering terrors on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say say all my close friends watching for my fall. 
Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. So Jeremiah saying even his close friends are watching him to watch him fall. And they're saying, perhaps he'll be deceived, and then we can take him. We can take him down. Jeremiah uh, was so discouraged by this that he even at times cursed his own birth. In verse 14 of chapter 20, he says, Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother born me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. So what kind of experiences would you need to have to curse the day of your birth? It'd need to be pretty extreme, wouldn't it? And even Jeremiah, the prophet of the Lord, is having experiences like that, wishing he was never even born. Jeremiah preached to great personal cost. He received death threats on numerous occasions. We read about Jeremiah. I can't show you all these things today. Death threats. At one point, he's thrown into a cistern. You know, in those cisterns we talked about, he gets thrown into it and left there. He's imprisoned. He eventually gets carried off to Egypt, not by his will. That's his life. Death threats. Even his friends hate him imprisonment, being carried off to a foreign country that he didn't even want to go to. That's Jeremiah's cost of ministry. But he had to preach. It was that burning in his bones that he couldn't hold in. You know, Jeremiah's life in so many ways is a foreshadow of other ministers of the gospel and the more broadly Christians in general who have held fast to the word of God. I think of the Apostle Paul. Remember Paul, who said in 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes last one. So whipped just to the point of death, but not quite there. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." And that was Paul's experience. But, you know, we turn to the early church. How many of God's people who held fast to the word and would not bow to Caesar were burned at the stake or fed to the lions or used, burned as lamp, on the lampposts in Nero's gardens? This is the story of God's people who remain faithful to truth. But friends, speaking the truth is costly. It's not a joke. It's costly. And I know that you have experienced that in your own workplaces, in your own situations. Standing for truth is costly. And Jeremiah stands as a massive contrast to false teachers then and now. 
What were the false teachers doing? We read in chapter 6, verse 13, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. You know, it is a sad reality that the gospel is not being preached in many, many churches today because it's offensive. And prosperity gospel abounds all over the world, particularly in places of poverty, like the much of the global south, where prosperity gospel is spreading like wildfire, promising health, wealth, prosperity, peace. If you only do this, if you only give this, you do that. And it's all an abomination before God. And they are shameless in doing so. They are shameless in their abominations. And these things are happening in our own city, friends. And they're happening in our own country. And they're happening all over the world. False teachers who are preaching a message that people want to hear for unjust gain. You know, Paul, in his charge to Timothy in chapter, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, when he urges Timothy to preach the word, be faithful in season and out of season, He said, a time's coming and now is here when people having itching ears will accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. You know, people don't want to hear bad news. They don't want to hear that they're sinners. So let's go find someone who's going to make me feel better. But of course, God's real people, they want the truth. Because also where the truth is about who we are by our nature. There's also the truth about how we can be saved from it. There's no peace without the truth. Jeremiah encouraged the people of God to follow the ancient paths, follow the old ways. He says in chapter 6, verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look and ask for ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. You know, again, the social progressive evolutionary mindset that is the air that we breathe in modern society, that new is better, old is bad, teaches us almost subconsciously to abandon old things. Old dead people are dumb. New people are smart. They were ignorant. We are enlightened. That, that is the, the, the way, That's the, that is the ethos of the air that we breathe. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. Everything that came before was antiquated. But friends, we learn from the Bible itself that the old ways are the right ways. And we're called to the ancient paths if we want to find life. Jude, writing to the church, said the same thing when he told the church, to contend for the faith once for all delivered for the saints. He's telling them not look 
to look ahead for new theology, look back to the word of God and contend for that, fight for that. He writes in his letter in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, if you are God's people, you have a battle. And that battle is simply going to be speaking truth and being willing to take the consequences for it. So we've seen two things so far. And now we'll move to the third. The third part of Jeremiah, the third thing I want to say that we can learn from him in summary is that the gospel is our hope. The gospel is our hope. The gospel is not something that was new in the New Testament. What was new is that it was clearly revealed in Jesus. But the gospel was there in the Old Testament as well. The basic message of repentance and faith goes all the way back to the beginning. Even as the Apostle Paul uses Abraham as the model for faith, as God accounted Abraham righteous by faith. The gospel is in the Old Testament too. And we read a glorious gospel promise in chapter 29 when God says to Jeremiah, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And in this context, Jeremiah is speaking to the exiles. They're going to go away to Babylon for 70 years. That's foretold through Jeremiah, and it comes to pass, as we learned about in Ezra and Nehemiah. But they're going to go away, but God says, I have good plans for you. I'm going to bring you back. And these plans don't end with simply a return to the land, which is itself transitory. But it's pointing forward to Jesus Christ who comes Jesus is the heir of all the promises of God. Paul says, in Jesus, all the promises of God find their yes and amen. And these promises are given for the church, God's Jew-Gentile church. The ultimate fulfillment of all of these things spoken by the prophets are given to God's Jew-Gentile church. The longest citation in the New Testament comes from Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews 8. When we read about God promising to make a new covenant with his people where the law will be written on their hearts and they will no longer forget it and they will teach one another. And Jeremiah is is foretelling about the outpouring of the spirit on the people of God when the truth will be impressed on our hearts because God has given us a new heart. All of this is fulfilled in Jesus and for his people. These wonderful plans of Jeremiah 29 are ultimately for God's Jew and Gentile church. Paul also calls the church the Israel of God, if you read in Galatians 6, 16. But in Ephesians 2, Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh 
called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Brothers and sisters, this is the message of Jeremiah. We've learned this morning that God's patience for rebels won't last. Judgment is coming. We talked about that judgment more last week with Isaiah, so I didn't mention that as much this week, about there is a future judgment that is coming. You can read Revelation 19, 20, 21, Matthew 13, and Jesus' parables if you want to read more on that. But God used Jeremiah as a man against the world. And Jesus, too, was a man against the world. He said, I have not come to bring peace but a sword, and to set mother against child, and child against mother, and so forth. There, our enemies, friends, can even be from our own house. But that is the reality if we're going to follow Jesus. So I want to end just briefly with this question for you. Who will you choose? And what will you choose? Will you choose the false peace that gives you temporal fake peace now? (coughs) Listening to the message of the world, following the easy path of life in the corporate world and in society? Or will you choose the true peace which is for us now as well and is everlasting? Remember what Jesus said. And Jeremiah can be our model as we think about what Jesus said. But in Matthew 10, 34, Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I leave Jesus' charge to you. If you want to find peace and prosperity and hope in this life and the next, Through repentance and faith, take up your cross and follow Jesus, come what may, in this world. Let's pray.